Welcome to the sixth and final episode of our community activation of the MENA startup ecosystem. We wrap up on Thursday with the finals of Pitch MENA Live, which you can watch live on the Global Startup Movement's YouTube or Facebook channels at 8.45 a.m. Eastern or 5.45 Dubai time this Thursday. Today, we're diving into the topic of reversing brain drain through engaging the diaspora and incentivizing expats to immigrate to the region in order to start their company. And a special thanks to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit exim.gov slash MENA to learn more. to leverage the diaspora community. For me, this is another key priority point right now. This is Omar Christides. You heard from him in the last episode. According to the official UN data, approximately 20 million MENA citizens live abroad, representing 5% of the population of the region, which is a much larger proportion than the world average. Activating this brain power is a crucial component in bringing the MENA ecosystem into the next stage of its development. The diaspora is much more likely than foreign investors to invest in their home countries, especially when there's weak business enforcement and poor governance. And I think that these guys can play a really critical role in bridging the both cultural and logistical gap between these markets, whether that means them bringing some part of their value chain back to their home markets. I'm very interested in this. How do we get more of these guys who have their companies in London, Paris, or New York, or San Francisco to establish a back office in Lebanon, Beirut, or Cairo, or Amman? How do we get them to invest some of their money as angels into startups in these markets? Uh, how do we get them to champion some of our local entrepreneurs in the markets where they operate? Because they already have a lot of credibility in those markets that they operate. So them bringing these entrepreneurs brings a lot more credibility to them. They have the network. They have the presence. So I think this is one key aspect. We need to look at the diaspora, engage with them, and, and see how, we, how they can play this bridge role. Uh, Amr Awadallah, Egyptian diaspora co-founder of, you know, Cloudera, massive multi-billion dollar company. So my name is uh, Amr Awadallah. I'm uh, one of the founders of Cloudera. I'm from Egypt originally. Amr is a part of the North American Arab community, which is small and mostly made up of Egyptians and Lebanese. He co-founded Cloudera in 2008 along with two other Silicon Valley engineers, and went on to raise just under $2 billion in funding over the next decade, ranking number five on the Forbes 2016 Cloud 100 list, before finally IPOing in 2017. Amr's story is really the story of a talented MENA engineer coming to Silicon Valley and getting adjusted to the cultural norms of entrepreneurship as a career path. I uh, came here in, uh, in 1995. I got my uh, bachelor's and master's degrees from uh, Cairo University. My goal was to come here and uh, get my... PhD, and then go back and teach. Like I had no intention to be an entrepreneur. When I came to Stanford, Stanford is a very uh, entrepreneurial uh, school, uh, very heavy on the entrepreneurship side. So by that, I mean they invite many speakers from the industry to talk about the companies that they uh, created. They uh, have many seminars and even uh, like semester-long courses, teach students how to uh, think about entrepreneurship, how to do a business plan, how to do a uh, investor pitch, 
they even have investors come in and, and, and help like score and rank some of these presentations because the investors are very close by. They're on uh, Sand Hill Road, which is literally right beside Stanford. So uh, Stanford very quickly changed my uh, career and aspirations from being a professor and teacher to being an, uh, an entrepreneur. They played a very big role in, in that. In terms of education, this is where the Middle East will need to look at collaborations. This is Sanjeet Chattery the best-selling author of Platform Revolution and Platform Scale. Sanjeet's work has been selected as one of the top 10 articles on business model innovation ever published in the Harvard Business Review. As thousands of young Arabs go through the global university system, it's up to the local universities, in partnership with ecosystem builders, to bridge the gap between Western universities like Stanford and Harvard and local universities across the MENA region to create more young techies like Amr who feel inspired to take the entrepreneurial path while still in school. Education is, again, an ecosystem issue, and you cannot just solve education by just building schools. So you would have to think about how you can collaborate with the world's best schools to fund them and have them open up campuses in the region and create rich exchange programs so that students from here can get job opportunities around the world and likewise students from around the world are sent here to work so that they have an exposure into the ecosystem, the, the work ecosystem over here. So creating those rich exchange programs is going to be important if, if the education and the jobs ecosystem have to kind of work together within the Middle East. And the cultural mindset shift is an issue that must be looked at through a much broader lens than just a youth education problem. The biggest thing about you know innovation is a culture of openness, right? So uh, being open to having different cultures come in, having different types of compensation structures, uh, on uh, being more open to entrepreneurial establishments coming up in the region. I think eventually it will come down to that because you can't solve openness through regulation or through money. It is a very cultural issue that has to come. And so traditionally, the Middle East has been fairly, you know, inward uh, and less open compared to, say, European economies or several Asian economies. So to to truly grow that level of cultural openness uh, will also be important in addition to everything that we've talked about. Culture is definitely a big deal. Here's Omar again. How can we create a more fostering culture? You know, it's interesting. A while back, I would have said, we need to work on the parents. I think a lot of that has changed. I think today is very different than five years ago. Today, the tech and startup world is a lot sexier than it was. If you're leaving your job at a cushy consultancy to start a startup, no one thinks you're crazy anymore because Kareem founders left McKinsey to start a startup and became billionaires. Recently, we had a brain drain from the region where a lot of the top talent from the region would go abroad to the West. This is Mudasir Sheikha, the co-founder of Kareem, a UAE-based ride-sharing app acquired by Uber in 2019 for $3.1 billion. And with the closing of the deal on January 2nd of this year, Uber has acquired Kareem's mobility, delivery, and payments businesses across the greater Middle East region. Mudasir and his co-founder Magnus are a case study in the power of a diasporan teaming up with an expat to create billions of dollars of value for the MENA region's tech and innovation ecosystem. So I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, and uh, came from a relatively middle-class family 
Mudasir came to the U.S. for university and had a similar experience as Amr in getting exposed to the Silicon Valley culture early on. I basically wanted to go to colleges in the U.S. hopefully get a scholarship because the family did not have money to pay for it. Applied to a bunch of schools, but as it turned out, for some reason, I got a lot of rejection. But Alhamdulillah, got into one school with full scholarship. That was University of USC, where I get to LA. So. So got in, went to the U.S., Alhamdulillah, on that scholarship, I graduated from USC, and now this is 99, in California, it's just the height of the dot-com bubble. Mudasir decided to stay in California after he graduated and joined an early-stage startup during the first dot-com bubble in the 90s, gaining valuable experience on what it's like to operate from the inside of a fast-growing tech startup. In 2011, the startup that I was part of got acquired, and that's when I started feeling that I should do something else. And as part of the thinking of doing something else, I joined a group of Pakistanis in the McKinsey office in Dubai that were working to open up in Pakistan. I, you know, I joined that team, and as the diligence to make Pakistan happen, I um, had to make a list of all the companies that we could serve in Pakistan, that McKinsey could serve in Pakistan. We started making a list of the largest companies in Pakistan, ranked them in order of size, and the results of that exercise were quite shocking to me. You know, guess how many billion-dollar businesses were in Pakistan at that time in 2011? One that was just touching a billion dollars. Uh, this is not including the oil and gas movies that tend to be a big larger. You know, the nation of 200 million people, we as such a large nation had only built one large corporate institution. It was really embarrassing. And the story is not different for other parts of the region. You know, I associate myself with the region, with the Muslim identity, and I felt this was not just a Pakistan issue, it, this is a problem in other parts of the region as well, and there was a desire to build something big. And I and I ran into Magnus, who was with me at McKinsey. We were the two people at McKinsey in the Middle East who were working on technology, because both of us had tech backgrounds before. He had a background in computer science as well, had built some startups before, and. Hence, both of us were assigned to anything that was closely tied to technology in some shape or form in McKinsey. So I ran into him, this is in 2012, he had a life-changing event where he was diagnosed with bleeding in the brain and was told that he may not survive and that he had to go through a brain surgery. And alhamdulillah, of course, he survived. And he had resolved to himself that if he survives and becomes what he called Magnus 2.0, he would lead life differently. We knew the opportunity in transportation from our days as consultants, because every Sunday morning, you know, consultants are taking the flight from UAE to either Saudi, to Kuwait, to Egypt, to wherever. And they would spend the week there and they would come back. And the week they were spending there, they were relying on car services. And if you go to Riyadh, oftentimes the car doesn't show up, pick you up, 
but it shows up, it doesn't understand your directions, so you have to call your friends, your wife, your hotel, to explain the directions to them, then they need to be paid in the local currency. And with that, Magnus 2.0 and Mudisir started Kareem, and the combination of their business savvy with their burning desires drove them to build a billion-dollar company, successfully exit, and create the definitive case study of a Dubai startup success story. In my book, Out Innovate, I explore the nature of entrepreneurship in startup ecosystems around the world. This is Alex Lazaro, a global VC based in Silicon Valley, who you heard from in the last episode. And one of the universals is that entrepreneurs are cross-pollinators. They are folks that are taking lessons and insights and experiences from different geographies and using them to build their ideas and the networks they built to get the resources they need to scale. And you see it both ways. Um, you see the power of immigration, for instance. In the U.S., for instance, over 50% of all tech startups in the Valley and 25% of all U.S. entrepreneurship was driven by immigrants. And these aren't just the businesses founded, it's also the biggest. 80% of unicorns have immigrants in key positions. But it goes the other way, too, which is the, the story of repats and diaspora returning home, powering the first generation of entrepreneurs that are catalyzing those ecosystems. We see this in the Middle East, but you also see it in many emerging ecosystems around the world in Sub-Saharan Africa and India and elsewhere. And so it's really this power of cross-pollinators. And the ultimate cross-pollinators are folks that have physically moved and, 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 and built networks and experiences in different geos that are really powering this proliferation of innovation around the world. And this episode should serve as a call to action to the MENA diaspora in the West to either find a local partner to work with back home or move back home to start building private sector wealth in your home countries. Startup ecosystems are catalyzed by what I call older siblings, but a generation of entrepreneurs that build startups, scale, and in so doing, actually train a next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators on how to build fast-growing businesses, create a generation of angel investors that have some capital, and they themselves end up being motivators and inspirers to the ecosystem at large. And that dynamic is playing itself out around the world. If you look at startup ecosystems, what you actually see is an inflection point. I mapped the amount of unicorns or billion-dollar businesses in different ecosystems. And what, uh, what you see is, you know, if you look at the story of China, in one year, they might have had one, four or five years later, they might have the second, and so on. And at some point, there's a critical mass, around five or six. And then the next year, the number explodes. Um, and, and grows exponentially from there. And we're seeing a similar dynamic in many startup ecosystems around the world outside Silicon Valley, where you know one or two might be seen as an aberration, but at some point there's critical mass and it explodes. And one of the reasons that happens is also because there is more and more people that have worked and scaled at these companies. There's more and more angel investors, et cetera. Um, in Endeavor, uh, the global ecosystem building nonprofit, they talk about this multiplier effect about how um, a set of early entrepreneurs are actually creating a multiplicative effect and impact in their sectors. And one of the entrepreneurs they profile, and I think the story is really great to, to explain this, is the story of how Aramex and Fadi Gandur and a lot of folks within that ecosystem actually helped being part and building out the, the ecosystem. So Aramex was an early company that scaled, an internal project that was split up and then built out was Maktoub, which was successfully sold uh, to Yahoo. One of their internal projects that was spun out was Souk, an auction site that was then later successfully scaled and exited. And those founders 
uh, were also big supporters of Kareem, which has become one of the iconic Middle East exits and a $3 billion, $3 billion exit, which I believe will then also catalyze another generation of entrepreneurs within who you know, might become the angel investors, might become the founders. We're seeing the early data around that, uh, which I think is terrifically exciting. The local public sector and ecosystem builders in the region should get clear on strategies to attract more diasporans and more expats to come to the ecosystem and start companies. And as long as expats are bringing new innovation and activating foreign capital into the ecosystem, it's a rising tide lifts all boats scenario. My co-founder Catherine and I, back in 2015, had seen the success of fintech challenger banks and neobanks such as the Monzo's, Revolut, Starlings of the world in the UK and in Europe. This is Ian Dillon, an expat from the UK and one of the co-founders of Now Money, a fintech startup based in Dubai. And although we really liked them as products, we thought that there was a, there was a big opportunity to actually use those as a force for good, to be able to provide high quality, low cost financial services for the first time to unbanked people that are less privileged than we are. And that was really where the idea came about. Um, I was traveling to the Middle East for work at the time. Catherine was actually living in Dubai already. And that's really where we started up the idea when, you know, once it became apparent just quite how many unbanked workers there are here and how big the opportunity was. And yeah, that's really how it came about. What Ian and his co-founder Catherine did was to enter with an outsider's perspective into Dubai in order to develop a solution for a unique local problem that resulted in the creation of a new market instead of competing for what was already there. The market before we came along was very cash-based. So customers were paid their salary. They withdrew it in cash, and then they took that cash to uh, physical brick-and-mortar exchange houses to send it back to their families at home. That has a lot of issues in that it's very inefficient. It's a waste of time for the customer. Um, and also, you know, the rates, due to the cost of cash handling, um, the exchange rates and fees they would charge were pretty, pretty poor. So, you know, there's a lot of weaknesses. There's also anti-money laundering issues and, and lots of weaknesses in the system. Um, the innovation we really bought in was to start to join up existing financial institutions in a digital ecosystem. So we work with licensed and regulated banks, uh, licensed and regulated exchange houses, and then lots of other partners in between. And we really are the glue that brings it all together and allows a customer to be able to receive their salary into a account managed by their smartphone, to be able to spend the money on a Visa or MasterCard payment card, and then be able to remit the money directly from a smartphone app um, at very competitive rates, very quickly back to their home countries. Ecosystems that provide simple immigration laws, sizable domestic market sizes, and a high quality of living will attract more expats like Ian and Catherine and more diasporans to come into the ecosystem and start companies, bring in foreign venture capital, and capture diverse perspectives from all around the world. And for the diasporans and potential expats who have inspired to look at starting a company in the Middle East or exporting there, we've brought on Ursula Wegzinovich from our sponsor, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, to discuss their toolkit of financing and credit insurance options to provide U.S.-based importers and exporters to the MENA region, loan guarantees, protection against buyer non-payment, and more. If you're an importer in 
Saudi or Egypt or Algeria, there are possibilities to get longer term financing at U.S. based interest rates, basically tapping the U.S. exporter, getting them engaged with us. And again, what we do is we introduce a bank or finance company that will extend the loan to a customer in Egypt for a period of up to five years, provided that we can get comfortable with the buyer from a credit standpoint. And then the U.S. company is able to sell that equipment, get paid out at time of shipment. And essentially the importer is happy because they've gotten a long period of time to repay for that equipment. And the U.S. bank or U.S. finance company doesn't have risk in the transaction because we're providing 100% cover on that outstanding amount. We do require that the buyer provide at least a 15% down payment. So they've got to have some skin in the game. Um, But beyond that, um, the balance can be financed, provided the balance is all, in this case, all U.S. made. Diasporans of the MENA region who are based in the United States are in a hugely advantageous position to leverage networks and business connections back home in the Middle East and take advantage of financing and cash flow solutions provided by the U.S. Exim Bank to U.S. citizens. We have a customer down in South Florida, Demetech Corporation, that has been a longtime customer, about 20 years now. And essentially, originally, they started out as just a medical device distributor, but they've actually gone into manufacturing. And a lot of it is because of the fact that they have used our credit insurance. So it's given them the comfort to offer terms. You know, they were doing business in the government with the government of Iraq, doing business in Lebanon. They have successfully used our credit insurance and are shipping now to actually more than 100 companies, and they've grown their company four times from a revenue standpoint, which is just amazing and, you know, a true success. Um, But they've really adopted how, you know, adopted Exxon Bank's programs and, and really used them to the max. What we tell our customers when we first meet with them is that we want you to be able to export to these various countries as if you were selling to your neighboring state. We want to take off the commercial and political risk off the table and have you be comfortable in potentially offering terms. Of course, we are doing due diligence on those foreign companies, getting comfortable with them. We do have to have reasonable assurance of repayment. So it's uh, not a free fall. It is not a grant program by any stretch of the imagination. For us, we're working closely with these companies and many of them who are doing business even just domestically oftentimes can apply the same rules internationally in terms of, you know, how do you do due diligence on your customer? Do you do, you know, get credit references, check credit reports, potentially ask for financial statements and international markets that can be challenging, certainly from a language standpoint as well as others, but that's what we're here to assist them with. According to official UN data, approximately 20 million MENA citizens live abroad. This represents about 5% of the population of the region, which is a much larger proportion than the world average. If only 1% of the MENA diaspora were mobilized, that would mean tapping into the expertise and network of 200,000 professionals. In addition to the opportunities that the growing middle class in the MENA region represents for U.S.-based exporters, activating the MENA diaspora can have enormous implications for increasing trade, investment, and knowledge transfer back home. The advice that we have for U.S. exporters, it's been a challenging year, but certainly that this is not the time to 
retreat, but rather to diversify, right? We all personally have to have a diverse portfolio as far as investments are concerned. And we want our U.S. companies to have a diverse portfolio of customers. And that means around the world. So we hope that they are going to reach out. We always tell our customers, please, you know, reach out to us, look for us. Um, We love to talk about transactions. There are some that we are unable to do, uh, but we want to hear from U.S. companies and we're happy to walk them through kind of what our thought process is, what are the risk mitigation tools, um, you know, how we think about risk and how we can help them mitigate some of that risk. And essentially that, you know, one, they stay open, they don't retreat, they continue to pursue those international opportunities, you know, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa. Those are developing and many are developing markets and we want them to be in there and doing business and you know setting the standard. Um, and also lastly, I guess that they engage, these US companies engage not just with us, but with their lenders, with their attorneys, their accountants, their freight forwarders, their partners, because all these are advisors that are staying up to date on what's going on in their area of expertise. And especially with the world changing on a daily basis, it's no doubt US companies are stretched like they never have been before. And so it's important to keep, stay close to those advisors who are staying on top of what's going on in various markets. I hope you enjoyed our six-week mini-series on the Middle East and North Africa startup ecosystem. Visit ecosystemarabia.tv by the end of the week as it's your last chance to secure a spot in our upcoming interactive virtual summit where you'll be participating in breakout sessions. You'll see two entrepreneurs pitch live for an investment in their business and you'll listen as experts unpack data-driven insights into the region's digital economy. And a special thanks to our presenting partner, the Export-Import Bank of the United States. As the global middle class grows and technology makes the world smaller, opportunities have never been greater for American businesses to reach customers beyond the U.S. border. Exim provides federal resources to access capital and mitigate foreign risk. And no business is too small. Let Exim help you export fearlessly to the MENA region and beyond. Visit exim.gov MENA to learn more.